The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We welcome you to Marsh Chapel on this Sunday as we join together in scripture and song in praise of God. Whether you are seated here in the nave of the chapel, listening live via WBUR at 90.9 FM in the greater Boston area, listening over the internet at WBUR.org, or listening later via the podcast, please know that you are a valued part of our community. My name is Jessica Chica, and I have the pleasure of serving as the university chaplain for international students here at Marsh Chapel. Our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, is away this week and sends his warm regards to each of you. Today we celebrate the legacy of BU alumnus, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. To To help us do that, we welcome our colleague and friend as our guest preacher, Dr. Walter Fluker. Dr. Fluker is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Ethical Leadership, the editor of the Howard Thurman Papers Project, and the director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Initiative for the Development of Ethical Leadership at Boston University School of Theology. We thank him for bringing us the word this morning. In his 1957 sermon, Loving Your Enemies, the Reverend Dr. King reminded us that darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. We gather this morning to worship God and be reminded of the divine gifts of grace and love which join us together in the body of Christ. Let us stand as we are able in praise of God.
us pray. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacrifice, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. We now enter into a time of reflection on both the things we have done and the things that we have left undone that might burden us throughout our days. As the choir sings the Kyrie, I invite you to consider these words written by Howard Thurman in his Meditations of the Heart. I seek the strength to overcome evil. I must not be overcome by evil. I seek the purification of my own heart, the purging of my own motives. I seek the strength to withstand the logic of bitterness, the terrible divisiveness of hate, the demonic triumph of the conquest of others. What I seek for myself, I desire with all of my heart, for friend and foe alike. in mercy loved us even when we were dead in sin and made us alive together with Christ. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And now a lesson from the first epistle of St. Peter, chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him a living stone, though rejected by mortals yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me now in reading responsibly verses from Psalm 31 with the Antiphon. refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net which is hidden from me for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine on your servants. Save me through your steadfast love. Sisters, please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of today's gospel. of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Glory to you, O Lord. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may also be. 
and do you know the way to the place where I am going? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. On this wonderful Sunday where we dedicate our thinking, our prayers, and our hopes to the vision of our beloved alumnus, Martin Luther King, Jr., to Dean and Jan Hill, to those who are in Radio Land, 
God bless you, and may we hear again anew the words of an old Negro spiritual, plenty good room, plenty good room, plenty good room in my Father's kingdom, plenty good room, plenty good room, just choose your seat and sit down. I'm dedicating this King's Day sermon to Amy Dufresne West, one of my doctoral students who is now in hospice. Her life is dedicated to this vision of plenty good room. In the midst of unspeakable bondage, living in a world that was too crowded to grant them rights to full humanity and the dignity of citizenship, these black and unknown bards envision a world where there was plenty good room. When these unlettered biblical exegetes and creative theologians overheard scriptures like John 14, which was read in your hearing, or other stories about heaven and a world beyond time and history. They perceived more than a Jesus who would return to prepare a place for them elsewhere. Rather, they signified on and imaginatively reconstructed the very concept of heaven as a place of plenty good room. They believed that there was plenty good room in the present because the God whom they served was not captive to time prescribed by their masters, a time of commodification and incarceration of black bodies. The words of this old song speaks volumes to where we are as a nation on this very special Sunday. And it calls us all to remember, retell, and relive its story in this strange period of American history that is returning to a time that we thought we had bypassed. We're witnessing a reversal of time that I sometimes call American post-post-racism, a return to the language of America first and let's make America great again a reconfiguration of time and history that harkens back to our ugly past where black, brown, and poor people in this country were assigned seats in the overcrowded house that race built. But my ancestors refused to believe there was not enough room for them in the United States of America and so they chose their seats and sat down in spite of the indignities hurled against them. What a word this is for us as we commemorate the life, legacy, and assassination of one of our, of our, one of our greatest prophets, the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. Like the witnesses in this song, we too need to return to this old spiritual and ask whether there's room enough for the poor, disenfranchised, and hopeless in America's future. 
during a time in which we're hearing our president disparage African nations as holes for defecation, holes that we help dig and may fall into, as we hear him deride our neighbors, El Salvador, Haiti, and Mexico, as we are witnessing huge tax cuts for the wealthy, the dismantling of health care, the building of walls to keep others out, the outright attacks on fragile natural environments, the strengthening of an insane and insidious prison industrial complex, saber rattling with North Korea, and the fomenting of visceral emotions unleashed after the tragic display of domestic terrorism in Charlottesville, Virginia. I want to remind you this morning, nonetheless, there's indeed plenty good room in our nation for a diverse and inclusive society or what the late historian John Hope Franklin called the land of room enough. But first, we must create space for others in our precious but precarious experiment in democracy. We must create and share democratic space. As one commentator remarked, democratic space is an unwritten permission to think, a fundamental consideration and respect granted by a state to its subjects to raise a voice of dissent and to disagree. It is this democratic space which forms the basis of a vibrant, healthy democracy. Sharing space with others with whom we have become accustomed is not hard. But to work to share space with those who appear as strangers, those whom we strongly disagree or who frighten us in their otherness is, a, is difficult and dangerous. Democracy at its best for Martin Luther King Jr. was a squabble a contentious exchange of ideas, opinions, values, and practices within the context of civil relations. When we forget this important truth, my brothers and sisters, we create conditions of alienation and violence. However we feel about building walls to keep others out, our greatest challenge is not keeping others out of this country, but as King thought, we must develop new and better ways of seeing and responding to our own interrelatedness and interconnectedness, not only in the United States of America, but in the world. Martin Luther King Jr.'s perspective on the civil rights movement was always global. From that first speech at Holt Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, through his latter years, his statements about our connectedness with neighbors around the globe became even more pronounced. King believed that first there would need to be a reckoning with Western imperialism's own presuppositions about power. Before his tragic death in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. reminded this nation that we no longer live in a small house, but rather we have inherited a world house. He suggested in clear and strident language that we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters 
or die apart as fools. I wish the White House could hear that this morning. During his latter years, King was acutely aware of the need for a broader interpretive framework, which he called a worldwide perspective, for understanding what he perceived as a crucial passage in our history. He suggested that the struggles of African Americans must be understood in light of a shifting of the West's basic outlooks and philosophical presuppositions about power. He said, we have inherited a large house, a great world house, in which we have to live together, black and white, Easterner and Westerner, Gentile and Jew, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interests, who, because we can never again live apart, must learn somehow to live together with each other in peace. But as we sit in this sanctuary on this Sunday dedicated to his memory, that democratic space is being contested by the present administration and many cowardly colleagues who display a non-action in the Republican Congress. I would like to share a personal story that helps to illustrate this contestation of democratic space. It was an encounter about five years ago in a crowded parking lot at the corner of West Paces Ferry and Northside Parkway in Atlanta. Those of you who are familiar with Atlanta might know this is a very elite area. I was searching for a parking space. I was in a hurry to meet my son's future father-in-law. And I'm the real deal when it comes to an absent-minded professor. I often get confused. But I really wanted to be on time as a sign to my new family of the kind of family that they were inheriting. So in my concentration on trying to find a space, I suddenly realized I was driving in the wrong direction in a one-way lane. I was transgressing. When I saw a woman moving towards her car, however, I looked through my rearview window to make sure that no one was behind me and decided to wait in hopes of making an expeditious entry once she departed. As I waited for her, I noticed that a fine-looking white middle-aged gentleman driving a top-down red convertible with a huge shaggy dog in the passenger seat. He was driving in the proper direction, and he entered the same lane. I thought he had stopped to accommodate the other driver's exit, so I reasoned to myself, since I was not obstructing traffic and no one was behind me, that maybe, just maybe, the gentleman in the convertible was extending not only a courtesy to the other driver, but also to me. But after the woman had exited, this fine-looking gentleman in the really cool red convertible rushed into the space, signaling his conquest of disputed territory. Perhaps I'd been living in New England too long and had forgotten my place in the genteel Southern culture of Atlanta. So when I nonchalantly questioned him in Boston style, his aggressive conquest of space and 
I just simply exclaimed, oh, how dare you? He responded with a racial insult filled with an old venomous tone that left me unsettled, disarmed, and in disbelief. How black of you, he shouted back at me with a vitriol that I found disturbing, disproportionate to context. After all, it was just a parking space. He continued to insult me by shouting that the problem in this country is that Obama and the rest of you think that you can just take over everything. By the way, this was August 31, 2012, a day I shall always remember. During the height of the presidency of Barack Obama's second campaign, I was unaware that I, nor Obama, nor the millions of people who voted for him really wanted to take this country from anyone. On that very special day, I just wanted to find a parking space and to meet with my son's future father-in-law. I'll spare you the exchange that we shared after that. Our challenge, my friends, is to create, to enlarge, democratic space. Five years after the end of President Obama's two-term presidency and one year after the election of Donald J. Trump, I think there's a deep and profound issue that threatens the very future of our republic and democracy. Contested democratic space. During the spring of 2006, I traveled throughout South Africa lecturing on ethical leadership for the State Department. One of my visitations was in Durban. My host took me to Petersmarisburg, the township famous for an incident early in the career of Mahatma Gandhi. In 1893, Gandhi arrived in Durban to serve as legal counsel to the merchant Dada Abdullah. Early in his employment, he was asked by Abdullah to take a trip to Pretoria. Traveling by train, Gandhi acquired a first-class ticket and had proceeded to his compartment when a railway official requested that he remove himself to the van compartment since coolies and non-whites were not permitted to sit in first-class seats. When Gandhi protested and refused to comply, He was thrown violently off the train and his luggage tossed onto the platform. I remember speaking with Gandhi's granddaughter about this, and she said Gandhi stayed at the Peter Marisburg station all night that night in the cold of that winter night and began to reflect on his duty. Should he stay and fight for his rights or return India. We know now that he stayed and chose a seat in the heart of South African politics and returned later to India where he challenged the hegemony of the great British Empire and the world has never been the same since. As I stood in that train station, which now has a memorial dedicated to his courageous action after the incident, 
I reflected on a similar incident that involved an African-American seamstress named Rosa Parks, who also had been told to give up her seat to a white passenger. But Rosa Parks, in a defined act of courage, chose her seat and sat down. And when she sat down, Martin Luther King Jr. stood up. On February the 1st, 1964, young black men, Joseph McNeil, Franklin McCain, Izell Blair Jr., and David Richmond, students at North Carolina A&T State University, despite the segregated statues prohibiting black people to eat in the downtown Woolworth store, decided there was plenty good room, and they chose their seats and sat down. They were denied service, but that did not stop them. They sat in their seats until the store closed and returned the next day with 16 more students. That didn't stop them. They stayed there until the store was closed. And on that third day, there were 60 students. And by the fourth day, over 300 people chose their seats and sat down. Their courageous action gained momentum and city and spread throughout the South and the Greensboro Four, as they came to be called, were a catalyst for the formation of SNCC Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which changed the course of the civil rights movement. My friends, as I close, the struggle for plenty good room requires revolutionary patience, irrepressible hope, and an insatiable desire to be free. King's vision of freedom and equality was not a solo act. Rather, it arose out of the solidarity of men and women, young people and elders from every color and creed who decided to choose their seats and sit down. King is a product of a rich and vibrant tradition of protest. King's vision of the beloved community and the world house grows out of this context of struggle, choosing a seat and sitting down. Long before King was catapulted into national and international fame after the Montgomery bus boycott, Long before he stood before the Lincoln Memorial and declared to a pilgrimage of thousands that America had written its citizens of color a bad check that had come back marked insufficient funds. Long before his campaigns for open public accommodations and voting rights. Long before his outspoken stance on an unjust war in Vietnam. His dream of plenty good room born in the violent context of the Deep South, where the inseparable twins of white racism and economic injustice had relegated black people to the status of things, non-persons, without names and destinies. The dream of community was already alive in the hearts of those who were willing to take seats and sit down. Yes, my friends, before the moronic diatribes and tweets of Donald J. Trump, Martin Luther King Jr. sought to make America great, but his was not through the demeaning and despicable attacks that we're hearing from our current president, and I hope he's only current. 
King believed that there wasn't room enough for other voices, other beliefs and opinions that that narrow myopic proposal of making America great again signals to all of us. In his famous I Have a Dream speech, King offered this conditional challenge to his fellow citizens. And if America is to be a great nation, if America is to be a great nation, not great again, but if it is to become a great nation, we must let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, from the mighty mountains of New York, from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado, from the curvaceous slopes of California, from Stone Mountain of Georgia, from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee, from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside, he said, let freedom ring. My friends, as we leave today, we must be willing to let freedom ring. We must be willing to choose our seats and sit down. We must be willing to do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly before God. The vision of the world house is not a dream for cravens and cowards who hide behind false justifications for non-action. It is not for spectators who stand on the sidelines and watch injustice and exploitation at a distance. It is not for superficial optimists who bury their heads in the sand like the proverbial ostrich and pretend that everything will be all right anyway. For when we bury our heads in the sand, we always leave more exposed than is hidden. It is not for greedy and insane puppeteers who hide behind the curtains of social fiction and manipulate the mindscape. It is not for sentimentalists and pop patriots and vain practitioners of an American civil religion sometimes called white evangelicals who wave the flag higher than they wave the cross. It is a dream for those who are willing to join the ranks of men and women who are so inspired by the moral order of the universe and the sacredness of human personality that they are willing to make a track to the water's edge and lay their bodies down as a bridge for others. It is a dream for men and women who are willing to stand alone when the crowds disperse, who will keep on moving against the odds, who will refuse to cling to falsehoods and lies that contradict reality, who believe that the truth has the final word in this universe and that justice and love will endure forever. This is the vision of Martin Luther King, Jr., a dream born out of the zeal for justice, nurtured in the praxis of struggle, refined in the fires of persecution, strengthened by the arms of faith, propelled by the vision of hope, enriched by the power of love, and set free by the truth that no lie can endure forever. We are his heirs. We are the ones to whom he has passed the torch. We are the dreamers who must make this world a better place. Dream on, dreamers, here in Marsh Chapel and elsewhere. Dream in season and out of season. Dream in the valley and climb to the mountain with King and see the land of room enough. See a new house, a world house with plenty good room. Choose your seat and sit down. And those who love God and peace and justice said, Amen.
to a time in our service where as a community we lift our prayers and praises to God. I invite you to assume a posture of prayer that will help you to join your spirit in prayer with those around you, whether remaining seated, standing, or coming to kneel at the altar rail as the choir leads us in our call to prayer. Lead me, Lord. Precious Lord, we come before you this morning tired, weak, and even a little worn. We are tired, tired of being tired, tired of the troubles of the world. We are weak like newborn infants who long for spiritual milk. Weak but wanting to grow in faith and faithfulness. And we are worn, worn down with grief with frustration, with world weariness. Precious Lord, in this hour of worship, enliven us, nourish us, build us up, so that we may go back into the world to walk in the light and to follow you where you call us to go. In this hour of worship this morning, Spirit of the living God, we pray for those whose names are on our hearts. We pray for loved ones who are sick. We pray for those who linger on the edges of life. We pray for those who have passed on into the next life. Open our hearts to the communion of saints who surround us, that as we sing and pray, we catch the strain of the heavenly choir. Jesus, we trust that there is plenty of room, even for us, on earth as it is in heaven. And we lean into you, you who are the way, the truth, and the life. We trust that no matter who rejects us, or reviles us, or tells us there is no room for you at this inn, at this school, at this table, in this denomination, in this city, in this country, we trust that no matter how we look, no matter where we're from and no matter who we love, we are your beloved children. And we have a home and we have a room that is lovingly prepared for us by you. This world may tell us that we are no people, but we proclaim that we are your people, O God. Help us to stand firm as living stones, confident that the stone which the builders reject can hold up a building with room enough for all. Help us to make room for others, Lord of all the nations, on this earth, in this life, to make a little space on the tea, 
to set an extra place at our table, to invite someone into our sacred spaces, to greet a neighbor in our city, and to welcome the immigrant to our nation so that heaven can touch earth and that we can catch a glimpse of your eternal glory. And when our tongues stumble and our words fail, we are grateful that you have given us familiar words to fall back on, which you have taught us and which we now pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We welcome you again to Marsh Chapel on this Martin Luther King Jr. Sunday. Thank you for joining us as a part of our community of worship today. For those of you joining us in the sanctuary, we invite you to fill out your name and contact information in the red pads found along the center aisle of each pew. This will help us to get to know you better and you to get to know one another better. Following the service, please join us for refreshments and fellowship downstairs in the Marsh Room at our weekly coffee hour. Tomorrow, January 15th, is the university's annual commemoration of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at 2 p.m. in the Metcalf Ballroom on the second floor of the George Sherman Student Union, entitled Words Beyond the Dream. This year's speakers include poets Camila Aisha Moon and Donna Smith, as well as performances by our very own Inner Strength Gospel Choir and the School of Theology's Seminary Singers. This event is free and open to the public and will last about 90 minutes. Uh, The chapel offices will be closed tomorrow in observance of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Classes resume this Thursday, January 18th at Boston University. However, uh, weekly chapel fellowship activities will not resume until next Sunday, January 21st. In line with that, our weekly Bible study will start next Sunday at 12.30 p.m. in the Thurman Room. This semester, they will be looking at the Gospel of John. For more information, um, please contact the courts or refer to the insert in your bulletin. Our weekly book study will not resume until January 28th. 
um, at 9.45 a.m., but this semester's book will be available for pickup next Sunday. Uh, they will be reading prophetic Protestant sermons on America's war in Iraq. If you want to be added to the email list for the book study group, please see uh, Jen Quigley after the service. For all other news and upcoming events, please visit the chapel website at bu.edu slash chapel, where there is also the opportunity for online giving. Now, as the ushers wait upon us for the offering, may we remember that it is a gift and a discipline to be a giver. God, you are the giver of all good gifts. Bless these offerings, the fruit of our labor, the prayers of our hearts, and the promise of our lives. May our work and prayer and living 
be of service to you in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Plenty good room, plenty good room, plenty good room in my Father's kingdom, plenty good room. So choose your seat and sit down. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make her and his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
the Lord lift this great countenance and light upon you and give you peace. Let us all say, Amen. <laughs>